The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, our hope is in you and in you alone. We would be fools to trust in ourselves because we are weak. We are sinful in ways that we don't understand and in ways that we do. We are short-sighted and uh, don't know. Don't know the way to go even if we wanted to go the right way. We are frail, we are human. And so our hope is only, ultimately, in you. You must save and you must build. If we are to be a people, if we are to be individuals and a people who follow after you, it must be a work done by you. And so I ask you to do some more of that work this morning to take this passage to pull out from it additional points in addition to what we saw last week and to build them into us to make us a people who trust you more and who follow you more, who are more like you, who love you more deeply than, than we do right now. Lord, make, make that happen in the next hour, throughout the next week, the next month. Build a people who more and more deeply trust you You, you do not need our works and are not impressed with them. The work of God is to believe in the one that he sent. So you told us off the lips of Jesus, and we believe that, but help us to believe it. Build trust in us. Build dependence. Speak through this word today, Lord, and highlight the, the wonder of Jesus. Highlight him in front of us and draw us to him and help us to understand hardship and its purpose. But we need you for this because my words are frail and weak and just human. So please make clear your word to us. Spirit of God, would you have your way in this room right now to, to control all of our distractions and to control all of our all of our bents and all of our thinking and all of our biases to, to control them and steer them towards you. We need you for that. So please, Spirit of God, highlight the sun in front of our eyes to the glory of the Father. Lord, give order to my words. Make them clear. Make them helpful. Make them God-honoring. Make them true. We look to you and we say thank you for being a wonderful Savior, for clearing away wrath, for developing, uh, for building a, a church here. Grow it now, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning again to Acts chapter 16. We're taking two weeks to look at this chapter in preparation for a longer study of the book of Philippians. So last week and this week, Next week, we'll preach on something related to Easter, and then after that, we'll start Philippians. Last week, I looked at the whole of the, of the chapter, well, most of the chapter, from verse 6 to the end, looking at the whole big picture because it all kind of forms a unit that has a central point, which I, I summarized at the very end with language like this. God is making a new community. Emphasis on God. God is making a new community. So let's join him in his work Worshiping as we work. His work, we work. God is making a new community. Let's worship and join him. That was kind of the, the big picture. So that by looking at, at God at work in the three main individuals in the chapter, who all of them are they're all different. They're different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds. But God moves on each of them to, to draw them out of their predicament to save and then to draw them together to form a church. He delivers them all, opens hearts, opens eyes, saves, and forms a new community. That was last week, verses 6 through 40. And we're going to look this week again kind of at the center of that, verses 16 to 34. 
to make some slightly different points. And really, in a way, this is a standalone sermon, but in a way, this is the third and fourth point to last week's sermon. So they're, they're connected, just too big to preach all at once. Specifically here this morning, we're going to see Jesus as the fulfillment of what everyone is looking for and what everyone actually needs. He's the answer, the, the answer to our need, but so often it gets, it gets blocked out of, he gets blocked out of our view by all the clutter of life, a this world focus. Clouds are sights, we don't see him for who he is, and, and tragically very often most people miss him completely. As God moves and kind of clears away the clutter. So we're going to look at that, Jesus as, as the one that we need but often miss and God clearing away clutter to help us see. So I'm going to read verses 16 through 34, picking up in the, in the middle of his ministry here in Philippi, Paul's ministry in Philippi. There's already, already been some success, a little church has formed, but then he meets some new issues here in verse 16. As we, that's this missionary band, as we were going to the place of prayer, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Stopping there. So, brief summary for those who were not here last week. This missionary band is coming and going from the house of this woman, Lydia. The Lord had saved in the preceding verses. Coming back and forth between her house and and other places of ministry, the riverside in particular. And as they go back and forth, they they are joined by another, a fifth member now of their little missionary team, a demon possessed slave girl. She has a spirit of divination that allows her to see and and then to, to forecast the future, unknown things, unseen things. She's gained a lot of money for her owners, she was a tool for their gain. She follows them back and forth, crying out, crying out, crying out. These men are talking about salvation. And of course, that's true. So what's the problem here? Why why does Paul get annoyed by that? It's not just because, we talked about this a little bit last week, not just because she's bothersome personally or her voice is annoying or something like that. 
It's because of what's going on here with, with a demon affirming Christ. Jesus, and Paul in Jesus' service, can't allow the two of these to stand. If we have a situation going on here where to allow this voice to, to continue to testify to Jesus would be to give it some legitimacy, to give it a standing. A bit like, maybe you remember back in school, that, that kid, that kid in class who was constantly talking to the rest of the class about what the teacher was doing, about what the administration was doing, about what was going to happen next week, that kid building up his own position and kind of exerting some control and some influence in the classroom, if the teacher just lets that go, or worse, says, well, it's exactly like Johnny says. Just listen to Johnny. Then the teacher is affirming and elevating Johnny over everybody else and kind of giving some legitimacy to that. Jesus cannot give legitimacy to a demon. Well, just listen to the demon. He's right. He knows. So he confronts that through Paul and throws it away, casts him out. Which aggravated the slave girl's owners because Paul just killed their cash cow. So they take Paul and Silas before the authorities, the magistrates, falsely accuse them of illegal activity. It's not lawful for us Romans to do this sort of thing. It's not illegal. But the magistrates don't bother to think things through and check the facts. They just beat them and throw them into prison. And they're locked up in the prison, in the inner part of the prison, and locked in stock. So they're kind of threefold contained. And as they sit locked there in prison, Paul and Silas are filled with rejoicing, praying and singing hymns to God. Clearly audible to the other prisoners, verse 25, they were listening. And then the earthquake comes. The hand of God shakes everything, destroys the bond and lets them all free, though they don't run away. This creates the scene with the, with the jailer. He's about to kill himself because he knows, as a former Roman soldier, this jailer would have been a former Roman soldier, he knows that prisoners entrusted to his care, if they escape, his life is forfeit. So he, suddenly, he awakes in the middle of the night after minding his business all day long, just doing what he was told by the magistrates. I lock him up, I go to bed, I wake up, I'm a dead man. About to kill himself. Until Paul intervenes and says, no, nobody's left. We're all here. And shocked by that, he asks, what do I have to do to be saved? We don't actually get the gospel message. We just get, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And so he does, and is delivered from sorrow to joy. But notice even he was delivered first from mind-my-own-business indifference to great despair and sorrow, and then to joy. We'll come back to that too. That's the passage. We're stopping there this week. I'm going to draw two more observations out of this piece of the central piece of the chapter, and together they make this one point. Let me summarize it in this sentence. God is at work, some of the last week, God is at work to display Christ even and particularly amidst hardship and suffering. So the two additional points I'm adding in this morning, to display Christ, even and especially amidst hardship and suffering. Those, those are the two additional points I'm working on this morning. Let's begin with displaying Christ. First main observation, God is at work to honor Christ, to display Christ as the true Lord and Savior. This must be paired up with what we saw last week. Last week, to refresh your memories, my two main points, God is at work to expand the kingdom. God, emphasis on God. And the second point, he's at work to save individual people. And those two points are true. We saw those clearly from the text. But this third point is necessary to add in, or else we would just think only of, of God and only of people. 
There's a third point here. God is in this world, in this city of Philippi, particularly interested in elevating Jesus Christ, of lifting Jesus Christ up and showing that this one right here, Jesus, is the true Lord and the true Savior. And I'm using those terms in particular, not because they are tried and true Christian terms, you know, Jesus our Lord and Savior, because of what they mean and because of a contextual issue here. What they mean, that, that Lord, he is ruler, king, authority, guide, champion, Lord, and Savior. He is deliverer, the one who brings people out from trouble and threat into life and blessing. He is Lord and Savior. And that is necessarily known and proclaimed throughout all of the earth. Jesus is the Lord and the Savior. So we need to see that just as, as Christians, we need to understand that that's who Jesus is. And particularly, that's going to become an issue in the book of Philippians. Philippi, you might recall from last week's text, Philippi is a Roman colony filled with Romans, populated at two different times by discharged Roman soldiers. This is a heavily militarily influenced town, very Roman. Who do you think they think is Lord and Savior? Caesar. Those two terms were even used of Caesar. It was even said of Caesar, he is king of kings. I thought it was a Christian terminology. Well, it is, but it was also said of Caesar, he is king of kings. He is Lord. He is the Savior of those in his realm. So everybody in this town has a thought. I know who the Lord is. I know who the Savior is. And that's going to be confronted by God at work to say, let me show you, let me display who the true Lord and the true Savior is. It is not an accident that the book of Philippians includes the passage, and God the Father exalted, highly exalted this one, Jesus Christ, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. Very often Christians misunderstand that, that Jesus is the name, or maybe Christ is the name. No, the name is Lord, and that name was given to Jesus Christ. So that when everybody hears Jesus Christ at his name, the Lord, and bow. God is at work to lift up Jesus Christ as the Lord, as the Savior. And we'll come to that sometime down the road when we come to Philippians. Right now what we see is some of God at work to do that, which Philippians talks about, to highly exalt this one Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Who or what is Lord over the slave girl? It would seem from looking at it that the demon is, or maybe the men are. They both are exercising control over her. Who reigns over her? Who is supreme, spiritually speaking, over her and over the spirit realm at work here? The demon is. And then when Paul and Silas are arrested... Who decides what does and does not happen in Philippi? Who decides what does and does not get talked about in the public sphere in this Roman town? It would seem that wealthy people, crowds, and magistrates who rule in the name of the Lord Caesar decide what does and does not happen. That's what it looks like from the outside. And into that realm... To compete for that throne, that name, steps God with Jesus the Christ. I will bring him in, and I will, in the name of the Lord Jesus, cast out this demon. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I will break apart this dungeon, and I will command the jailer to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Actually uses the word Lord there. This is God at work to show the one who actually is in charge. To tear down all rivals to, to, to the throne. 
this Jesus, we have to stop and think because we are far too familiar with even the terminology, Jesus is Lord. We are far too familiar with, with the tendency or at least the, the expressed desire to follow what it is that Jesus commands, to do whatever Jesus teaches. Stop and think for a second. To say that Jesus is the true Lord. What does that mean? Especially think about that as, as Americans because we don't, we don't readily acknowledge some person who tells us what to do. We, we, yeah, we have a president, but we vote and we change them every four years or every eight years. We tell them what to do. We pick who they will be. And on down from them, we, we don't really have... Even, even parent and child, we grow out of that relationship. And parents don't even tell children what to do for their whole lives. So we, we have a difficulty of recognizing lords. Perhaps expand the, the definition of lord from a particular human being to some sort of a rule or a guide that tells you how you should live. that governs and directs the course of your living. You do obey things in this world. You are drawn to give allegiance to things. And over all of them, there is a single true Lord who exercises authority, dominion in this world. And gloriously, it is a dominion that is tied to a saving work because he is the true Savior as well. Every situation here where he exercises Lord, it's paired with Lord to save. It is lordship that casts out a demon to deliver a girl. That breaks open a jail cell so that the gospel is free and a jailer and his whole family become new creatures. It is, it is a lordship, something that you must obey, follow, submit to, and trust that also brings you out of threat and trouble into life and blessing. There is one true Lord and one true Savior, and He is Jesus. Grasp that. You must see that, that. That's what's going on here when Paul trots into town. He is announcing a new reign for the good of people. Jesus. You must see that. I take one turn on that because I, I reckon that as I'm talking to you, even as I plead with you to think about what does it mean, Lord, and what does it mean to be saved, to deliver, be delivered into life, out of judgment, I ask you to think about that, but I reckon that most of us, even as you think about it one more time, you think, okay, okay. I want to work one more time around that circle and say, it's right here, plain to see. You, you get it in some way. In the text, it was right there, plain to see. And most people didn't see it. Not really. Catch that. Verse 18. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19. And when her owners saw it, they broke out in praise and thanksgiving because God had shown them who the true ruler was and where life was found. That doesn't say that. 
They were hacked off because their hope for gain was gone. A new Lord arrived and delivered from the demonic, and they're angry about that. But it's not just them. The, whole, the crowds also. What's the issue? They cast the demon out of our slave girl, and she can't speak fortunes anymore. The crowd is stirred up, angry about that. This is not lawful. They are disturbing our town. We can't be Romans and do this. And the magistrates also well, that can't happen. And they beat them and throw them in prison. And the jailer, never asking any questions, just locks them up. Everybody knows what the disturbance is about, and nobody cares. They see, but they don't see. I'm talking to people. The reason I pull this out, I'm talking to people. I know most of you. I don't know all of you, but I know most of you. And I know that you see, but I wonder, do you see? Do you? A new Lord and a Savior. Uh huh. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to the Christians here. I, as I said, I don't know everybody. I don't know if everybody's a Christian here. Probably not, given numbers. I'm speaking to the Christians here. The world is full of many things that call for your allegiance and promise to deliver you to life. Full of authorities, full of guides, full of, of dominating influences, Christian, that you give your life to. I'm talking about things so simple as the teenager who spends an hour in front of the mirror to look just right. Why is that? Why is that, teenager? Why is that? I was a teenager. I know the answer to that. I'm asking you to ask rhetorically, which means without answering, to ask yourself why that is. That's a small, little, simple thing. There is, a, there, is an influence, there is a power out there that tells you what you must look like and how you must be. And if you are that, then you will find blessing and life and acceptance and joy. There's a Lord and a Savior offered there to you. Not, not, not in a single person, but in this culture. I'm talking about little, simple things like that. And then much bigger things where we obey in fear people and rulers like bosses. Christian. We very, very often sit in a place where you see all of this and you hear it preached all the time and you read it in your Bible constantly, with, with great consistency, I hope. But do you see it? There is one Lord, one authority exerted over your life who is exerting authority so as to save you. To give you life and blessing and joy in allegiance to, in full-hearted trust of independence on Him. Embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior for real, Christian. And I'm sure there are some here who are not Christians, and what I mean by that, embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, has everything to do with the fullest sense of those words, Lord, as the one who is in charge of your life, and Savior, the one who delivers you from the wrath of God, ultimately. We are born growing up with hearts that are bent against Him. Though He is God and though He is Lord, we turn away. And the call to you always and consistently in the Bible is turn, 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 surrender, trust. God is the one who has acted to deal with the human rebellion against him that lives in your heart.
he acted by sending Christ and displaying him as Lord and then crucifying him to save. To die on the cross, to take your sin upon himself if you will trust him. And if you will not, if you resist his lordship, there is no salvation. What a tremendous offer. But it is an offer that is tied together. You cannot have one without the other. So the Bible calls you also to submit to and to embrace and to trust wholeheartedly this one as Lord to save. Come and find life. Come and find life. So you hear me saying this. You hear me calling us to embrace Christ and see the work of God to lift up this Jesus as the true Lord and the true Savior in front of us to to bring His authority into our lives to save us. You hear me saying all that. And and in some way, I, I reckon that in some way it resonates. But in some way also we struggle to see There are many other distractions, many other offerings of lords and saviors in the world. And the text shows us one way that God sometimes acts to strip away the distractions so that we can see better. That takes us to the second point. God intends... And I'll say before I, before I say this, I need to encourage you to keep listening. Because I, I don't know where you're coming from, but I'm going to say it like it is. And some of us might say, no way, I'm out. Keep listening. This comes out of Paul and Silas's punishment at the hands of the authorities and the initial despair and near suicide of the jailer. Here's the point. God intends that there be suffering in this world so as to show the surpassing worth of Christ. Sometimes God works this way. God intends that there be suffering in this world so as to show the surpassing worth of Christ. So let me build towards that. Obviously, there is suffering in the world. The difficult part is the intends piece, which is to say, on purpose, plan very different than saying that God is evil and that God is sadistic and that God sins and that God is responsible for sin. The Bible is very clear about that. We've talked some on this a bunch of times when we worked through Samuel. We talked about the doctrine of providence and how God works out his purposes through the ordinary actings of secondary agents. The Bible repeatedly says you are responsible for what you do, but that God is working all of that for his own purposes, which is where the word intends comes from. This is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. We see it in the story. Look at Paul and Silas, for instance. Suffering, right? Attacked, beaten with many blows, locked in stocks in an inner dungeon, physically suffering there, emotionally. I I can imagine that that afternoon was troubling. Can you? I imagine there's a bit of uncertainty about what tomorrow is going to bring. So there's some emotional suffering there also, as well as just the physical pain of it all. And why did all of that happen? Because God exercised his power in casting out that demon. Paul had no power to do that himself. God did that. Lifting up Jesus as true Lord and true Savior. God did that. God killed the cash cow. And God, who knows all things, surely knew what would happen next. 
sovereign controls all over this passage. He le- remember we saw last week he led them from here, led them to there, led them over here, led them across with a vision, just down to where they found Lydia and opened Lydia's heart, etc., etc. God's sovereign controls over all of this. He's in charge of the situation. He knows everything that's coming. And if you or I or certainly God know that a course of action will get a particular result and then we perform that course of action anyway, that's on purpose. We get that result on purpose. We intend, not an accident or an unforeseen byproduct. God intends that there be suffering. And by the same logic, he intends the emotional anguish and despair of the jailer. He sends the earthquake. He knows full well Roman law, knows completely what it will look like when the jail is broken open and all the bonds are empty, all all the, the shackles are empty. Suffering of a different sort, but he intends the suffering of the jailer in that moment of anguish and despair. Why? Why? Because suffering can often lead to seeing. Suffering can lead to seeing. Verses 22 to 24 happen. 22 to 24. Attack them, tore their garments off, beat them with rods, inflicted many blows, threw them in prison, fastened their feet in stocks. Happened so that verse 25 would happen. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, marveling. Marveling, wondering. The stocks slam down around their ankles and they're locked in the inner dungeon and not after they are released, but in that moment, right there, literally in the darkest hour at midnight, Paul and Silas break out in audible prayer and singing, worship, They see something. In the midst of the darkness, they have light to see. The two of them right there themselves have light to see the sufficiency of Christ able to sustain their own souls, able to save them themselves. Paul and Silas see Christ as true Savior. When they have nothing else on heaven or on earth besides him, they find he is enough. And my heart is filled with joy and rejoicing while Everything else flees away from me. Paul and Silas see something in the midst of their suffering. That often gets lost on us when we have Christ and everything else under the sun. We see Christ and we see everything else that we have offered to us and everything else that seems to deliver something to us or threaten us. And often, this stuff kind of stands in the middle, clouding the view. We see him back there, but see him through, a, through some sort of a, of a distracting cloud or, or maybe images that block, block part of the, the sight. Something in the middle. And in grace, sometimes God plans suffering to clear our minds. If you will, to kick out the supports. So we have nothing left to lean on or to sit on other than Him. And only in those moments that we find He actually is enough. He actually is the true Savior. When I have nothing else but Him and am saved by Him, That clarifies it for me. Paul and Silas find that and he's speaking and helping to see all the other people all around him. Everybody else in that jail is seeing something too. Verse 25 says, They were listening. 
and likely thinking, if you fill in the blanks, whatever these men are feeding on in their souls, I need that too because I'm in the same predicament. And do not feel like that. I'm in the same predicament, and my mind is over here, and their minds are over there. What's got them over there? They're starting to see something, maybe. And of course, God is working in the jailer too, bringing his world crashing down so as to bring him to seek Christ and find joy there. Verse 34, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. So what's the point here? The great problem that we all struggle with is a this-world focus, a looking at the various offers of things to give allegiance to, lords to follow, and the promises of life that they hold out in front of us, the saving false promises of this-world focus. And sometimes God graciously, and I... I I say that carefully because I know that is, that's the part that's hard. When you're thinking about the particular suffering that you're thinking about, God graciously is hard to put together with that sometimes. But God graciously introduces trouble that clears out the clutter. that makes crystal clear to us in those trying moments that I have nothing else. There is no other thing anywhere worth giving allegiance to, and nothing else can save me. In those moments, through great hardship, absolutely, but in those moments, in great hardship, glory is, is oh, just... It's just possible that glory might blossom over you and might cover you in great joy and in great delight because you might find right in the midst of and, and only in the midst of that deep despair the true Lord and the true Savior who brings to you great rejoicing that you have been found by Him, made new by Him, brought from death to life by Him and by nothing else. Sometimes God in his wisdom knows that's what's needed here. And so in grace I will bring a difficult mercy. A mercy that does not just leave them where they should be in their deluded following of false gods. I will introduce myself to them by taking everything else away. I grant you that's a hard message. I will also grant you that when that message applies most acutely to me, I don't always do well with that. I'm not just talking about what you need to get. Okay? But this is the truth. And it'll set you free if you get it. If you can, with eyes like this, Look at the suffering and the hardship that God has intended to come to your life. And there is no suffering and hardship in your life that he has not intended. Follow that? If you look at the suffering and hardship that God has intended to bring to your life and say, in this you mean to do me good, you mean in this to show me the true Lord and the true Savior to make extremely clear to me that I have nothing else on earth but Him and He is enough. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasure forevermore. Psalm 16.11. The whole of Psalm 16 would profit, you'd profit from some meditation on that psalm. Christian, God 
is at work to lift up in front of you Jesus as the true Lord and Jesus as the true Savior because He is the Lord and because He is the Savior. And you can be saved today. I'm talking to a Christian. So you are saved from the wrath of God. Amen, 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 amen. But you can be saved today from walking through this world burdened by sin and struggling in sorrow. Can you get rid of sorrow? Nope. I'm just talking about that. God will bring sorrows, but you can rejoice in the sorrows. Amazing. Paul talked about living a life rejoicing and sorrowing. Rejoicing and sorrowing. Sometimes when I talk about this, I have to plead at the beginning that you keep listening to it all the way through. And I have to plead at the end that you deal with it before God with sort of an open-handed heart. Because I have some awareness of some of what suffering and hardship means. Just a little bit in my own life, but I talk to lots of people. I have some awareness of that. And I know hardship is hard and suffering is is painful. The hope for you, Christian, in the midst of that is to see God at work to do you good. He's told you that, you know. A verse you might remember. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Later in the same chapter, I I gave you Christ. I gave you Christ to save you from my wrath. Will I not also, along with him, give you everything else? I'm I'm out to do you good always. Always. You can trust me. That's what I'm about. The way you find hope in the midst of the hardship and the suffering that he has brought to you is to see why he brought it to you. You will never know all the answers, but one of them for certain is to kick out the supports that we so often unwittingly lean on and to highlight before us the sufficiency of Jesus, the Lord and the Savior, the one you need. So trust him. Trust him. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's there even when he brings suffering and hardship. It's there because he's lifting up in front of you the one who would be the joy of your heart, the Lord and the Savior, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we read here of how you started a church in Philippi in a completely pagan world. You started it through great sovereign work. You built it through hardship. We're going to learn more from that book in weeks to come, but I pray that you would, starting there, Lord, Show us your sovereignty used for good. Show us your sovereign use of suffering even used for good. Clear away the line of sight that is blocked often. Clear away the line of sight between our eyes and Jesus. Build faith in your people, please. 
convince some, Lord, e- even now there are some who, who are wrestling, I, I would expect, who are, are wrestling. Would you speak to them even in this moment and convince them that you are good, that you are for them, and that you are right in the middle of all the hardship that they are facing? right in the middle of it, to fasten them more tightly to Jesus. Convince them of that, Lord. Speak that truth to them and convince them in their hearts. Build a church, Lord, that looks to you always, that is not, that is increasingly not swayed by the offers of the world and increasingly deals with difficulty in a God-honoring, rejoicing way. Give us hearts like Paul and Silas that in the midst of hardship can sing and rejoice. That is not common. Would you build that, please, in me and in our church? Lord, use the book of Philippians as it comes to us to build trust and to build joy, to build allegiance. Bring honor to the Lord and Savior. Bring life to his people, us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Be honored in it, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.